Uh, today we conclude our series on the book of Daniel by looking at the last three chapters. It's, as you know, is a longer reading. We typically don't read as much scripture, but we need to be reminded that for most of church history, this is how Christians, uh, this is how they engage with God's word is by hearing it read. So this is good for us to be reminded of that. And also it's good for God's word just simply to be read and for us to listen. This long section recounts a single vision. So these three chapters actually go together as one section. Daniel receives this vision in the third year of King Cyrus, the Persian king. Now, two years earlier, in his first year of reign, Cyrus proclaims that the Jews and other exiles are able to go back to their towns and rebuild. So there's a small portion, a small group of the Jews that return to Jerusalem and begin, begin to rebuild it. This is a, a response to Daniel's prayer in chapter 9 as we looked last week. Uh, God is releasing the captives and bringing them back home in fulfillment of prophecy spoken by Jeremiah. Well, this small group of the Jews return to Jerusalem and they face severe opposition there. And two years later, at the time that Daniel is praying in our chapter today, discouragement has set in and the rebuilding efforts have pretty much stopped at this point. So we find Daniel in mourning over the situation, and he is praying for God to come and intervene again. And this is when he receives a word from God about a great conflict. Now, as we look at our text this morning, I'd like to show you that there are actually three conflicts that are described here. They're all related, but there are three aspects of three battles that we can talk about today. You can think of a war being conducted by different branches of the military. Got the Air Force fighting the enemy in the air, the army on land, and the navy at sea. So here in our passage, we see a battle in the spiritual realm, mostly in chapter 10, and a battle in the world, kind of giving us the overview of human history, and that's mostly chapter 11 and some in chapter 12. And then finally, a battle in the heart that's going to be relevant to all of us this morning. So battle in the spiritual realm, battle in the world, and a battle in the heart. Each battle, we will see, requires that we use the right weapons. So be, be paying attention to that as we go through our text. All right, let's begin with the battle in the spiritual realm. As Daniel prays, a mysterious messenger comes to him and speaks to him and gives him this vision. So who is it? Some scholars think it's a vision of Christ, pre-incarnate Christ, like we have already seen in chapter 7. Others think it's an angel. I don't think we can be dogmatic about this passage. However, my view is, I think it is Jesus, because the description is so similar to Revelation 1, verses 9 and 20. It just seems like there's so many similar details. But... Lots of godly people disagree here, and I think we, can, uh, we don't need to be dogmatic about that. But at any rate, this person appears to Daniel as he's praying. As Daniel is pray, praying in Persia, this, this person is, is telling him there's a battle that is happening in the spiritual realm even as he is praying. 
The battle is against the prince of the kingdom of Persia, a demonic figure who exercises control over the territory of the kingdom of Persia. And after 21 days, Michael, an angelic being responsible for the well-being of Daniel's people of Israel, comes to help this mysterious messenger. And now he is able to come and speak to Daniel and reveal what is to come. Now, please note that the answer to Daniel's prayer is delayed for three weeks. So Daniel is praying for three weeks, 21 days. He's praying, he's fasting, he's engaging with God in prayer. And yet the answer doesn't come until something happens in the spiritual realm. So Daniel is engaged in a much larger battle than he realizes. He's praying for the exiles who have returned to Jerusalem. He's praying for God's deliverance of his people. And yet in the spiritual realm, there's a battle that happens between angelic, demonic beings who are responsible for certain parts of the world. And Christ himself is involved in that battle. Now, according to the Bible, there is another realm, the usually unseen spiritual heavenly realm in which battles rage. Paul says in Ephesians 6, and this is the passage we'll be looking at over Lent starting next week. Ephesians 6 Verse 11 and 12, Paul says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the, prince, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now what appear to be earthly conflicts to us are often parallel to heavenly conflicts. And as Daniel is praying against the opposition to the Jewish settlers in Jerusalem, Michael, the prince of Israel, is fighting against the demonic prince of Persia who wants the Jews to stay in exile. This is really important for us to understand because we live in the world and we live in the culture that rejects the existence of the spiritual. And so we are so controlled by our senses. And, and please understand that our culture is intentionally making us so, and we are intentionally and, and willingly are contributing to that. That we think what is real is what, is what is appealing to our senses. And yet Scripture tells us there's a whole other realm, in fact, a more important realm, that goes beyond our physical senses, but can be discerned through the spiritual senses and through the revelation of God in Scripture and in the Spirit. Now, there's another passage in Scripture that shows us kind of the curtain being pulled back, and we get a glimpse of what is happening in the spiritual realm. So if you can open your Bibles to 2 Kings 6, 2 Kings 6, 15 through 17. Just a great passage, and, and it's good to know all of Scripture because then you can correlate these different passages. It's good to read those long stretches of Scripture in the Old Testament to know how God has been dealing with His people. And so this is Second uh, Kings chapter 6, starting in verse 15. <clears throat> this describes the siege of Samaria. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army 
with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. This is a, a rare time when we are able to see, almost with the physical sense, what is happening in the spiritual realm. Now, Daniel gets a glimpse of that through this vision. Elisha gets a, a, a glimpse of that, and Elisha's servant, they get a glimpse of that through a special revelation here. But that is happening all the time. You know, the point is that there's a lot of things we don't see. But when we pray, we engage in that con conflict. The weapon to be used in this battle is prayer. When Daniel is praying, he, he engages with what happens in the heavenly realm between Michael and the prince of Persia and Christ himself. There's a battle that's happening, and it's prolonged. And so for 21 days, Daniel is praying, and the answer doesn't come because something has to be resolved in the heavenlies until it is evident here with us. Now that should help us persevere in prayer. Something else is happening, things we don't see, things that God is involved in, and yet we get to participate in that through prayer. In Ephesians 6, that passage on the whole armor of, armor of God, when, when Paul is describing each, each piece of the armor, and he's walking us through this spiritual battle that we are engaged in, what seems to us like just a battle with flesh and blood, just with people around us, things we understand and can see. And he says, yeah, but there's so much more that's happening, so put on this spiritual armor so you can be engaged in this conflict in the right well way, be protected, be, be using the right weapons. But then in verse 18, after he goes through all the pieces, Paul ends on prayer. It's interesting that he ends on prayer. Verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. This is how we engage in these spiritual realities. Praying in the Spirit, the Spirit who is involved in the spiritual realm, who's able to, to help us see what's happening or perceive in some way what's happening. He engages us in these battles through prayer. Let me just ask this question. If we really believed that by prayer we engage in the spiritual conflicts in the heavenly realm, how would we pray? I mean, if we really believe that. Daniel is praying. He's praying for specific things. He's very serious about his prayer. And then it's revealed to him that as he's praying, there's these things that are happening in the spiritual realm. That happens when we pray. And if we could only understand that and remember that and feel the weight of that, we too would persevere for weeks in our prayers. We too would be serious about our praying. 
John Piper laments that many Christians have forgotten that we live in wartime and that prayer is the wartime walkie-talkie to be used in battle. Listen to what Piper says. But what have millions of Christians done? They have stopped believing that we are in a war. No urgency, no watching, no vigilance, no strategic planning. Just easy peacetime and prosperity. And what did they do with the walkie-talkie? They tried to rig it up as an intercom in their cushy houses and cabins and boats and cars. Not to call in firepower for conflict with a mortal enemy, but to ask the maid to bring another pillow to the den. We simply must create in ourselves and in our people a wartime mentality. Otherwise, the biblical teaching about the urgency of prayer and the vigilance of prayer and the watching in prayer and the perseverance in prayer and the danger of abandoning prayer will make no sense and find no resonance in our hearts until we feel the desperation of a bombing raid or the thrill of a new strategic offensive for the gospel, we will not pray in the spirit of Jesus. Is it convicting to you this morning? It is to me. I think we, by and large, the evangelical church in America, by and large, I think we have lost sight of the conflict in the spiritual realm. And we have lost urgency and perseverance in prayer. And there's no clearer sign of this, in my opinion, than the near disappearance of the practice of fasting from our churches. We do not fast because we do not pray. And we do not pray because we do not believe in what prayer is supposed to accomplish. Now look at Daniel. He's praying and fasting for three weeks. This is a partial fast, the type of fast many of us practice over Lent and at other times. He gave up meat and wine, common things, pleasant things, good things. He gave up some other delicacies and comforts. Why? He is reminding himself that the physical reality is not his greatest concern. It is a concern, of course it is. But it's not the greatest concern. He's able to pray and participate in the, in the spiritual conflict that is happening in the heavenlies because he has disengaged for a time from the usual comforts and pleasures. I just want to be very straightforward. It is impossible to pray like Daniel with a donut in your hand. You just can't do it. You can't do it. You have to disengage from certain comforts. You have to remind yourself that there's a bigger battle that is happening beyond what you can see, beyond what you can taste with your mouth. So you retrain your senses and you submit them once again to the Spirit and let the Spirit reveal to you what is really happening. Andrew Murray, 
the South African pastor from 1800s, says, prayer needs fasting for its full growth. Prayer is the one hand with which we grasp the invisible. Fasting is the other hand, the one with which we'll let go of the visible. So in prayer, you grasp for the invisible. You're reaching into spiritual realities you can't see. You're participating in this conflict in the heavenlies through your prayers. Fasting is the other hand that lets go of the visible, so you can do that in prayer. You got to let go. You got to limit yourself. You got to remind yourself who you really are and what you're really involved with through prayer. So, my exhortation to us this morning, especially as we we'll go into the season of Lent, but in general to us, we've preached on these topics before. Seriously, would you please seriously examine your prayer life? Would you please seriously consider fasting? There's a battle raging in the heavenly realm for our community, for our church, for our children. And you need to join that battle by praying and fasting. This is very practical, and this is urgent. Engage in that battle through prayer and fasting. Now, the second battle that we see in our text, and this is primarily in chapter 11, we see the battle in the world. Daniel receives a vision of conflict throughout human history in a particular part of the world where he, uh, where he is. Now, these predictions in chapter 11 are so accurate that many commentators, many scholars, actually take them to be history written much later. Now, you see that in commentaries all the time. Uh, it's so specific. These predictions are so specific. They're saying it must have been written after it happened. Now, the only reason, in my opinion, you would do that in Daniel is because you just don't believe that God sees the future and he can tell us exactly what's going to happen. If you believe that God wrote this, and if you believe that God is so wise and he's so powerful and he's so much in control that he can predict the future, you have no problem seeing this as prophecy written centuries earlier. Amen. And it's important for us to simply trust the Bible. There's no reason to think it's written after unless you think God can't predict the future. So this is what is predicted, and this is why it's so specific and makes people think it's history. Greece would conquer Persia, Persia under Alexander, and this is in chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. There's a prediction of a new power. That's Greece that comes. Alexander's kingdom would be divided among his four generals. We saw that in a previous chapter in Daniel, we talked about that. After his death, so it's not given to his posterity, it's not given to, uh, to, to those that are supposed to come after him as his children. He dies very young. And so his four generals divide the kingdom. This is 323 B.C. And for the next century and a half, there are two dynasties that are vying for dominance in the Middle East. You have the Seleucid dynasty based in Syria. So that's one of the generals took the northern part. 
and they're known as the kings of the north in our text. They battle for dominance with the Ptolemaic dynasty based in Egypt. That's the kings of the south. And we read about it in verses 5 and all the way to verse 20 in chapter 11. And so this is known from history now. We, we can easily trace these events, and these figures are not secret. It's very easy to correlate that to history. But then there's a contemptible person that rises in the north, so from the northern kingdom. In, uh, this is 1121 in our text. There's a contemptible person that rises to power. And pretty much everybody agrees. It's hard to find a scholar who disagrees with this view. This is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes means God manifest, as he printed on his coins. When he printed his coins, the inscription read, God manifest. This is what he thought of himself. This, uh, this king, by intrigue, deception, and bribery, became very powerful, but for a short time. In the context of world history, this is a very, he is a very insignificant ruler. So why is there so much space? The rest of chapter 11 is dedicated to him. Now, there are two reasons here. One, it's because Antiochus would do a lot of damage to God's people in Jerusalem. This is very relevant to Daniel. In um, 167 B.C., again, this is well documented in secular history as well, 167 B.C., Antiochus desecrated the temple in Jerusalem. By that time, the temple was rebuilt, the city was rebuilt. He forbade the practice of the covenant obligations like sacrifices. This is verses, verse uh, 31 in chapter 11, if you're following through the text. He was so enraged that Rome was interfering with his plans to conquer Egypt. This is by the time this fourth kingdom, Roman kingdom, is, is coming up and gaining influence. He was so enraged that Rome, these ships of Kittim, came and interfered with his plans to conquer Egypt, that on the way back through Jerusalem, through Palestine, he just took out his anger on the city and on the temple. And he did a despicable thing. This is what's called the abomination of desolation. He set up an altar for Zeus in the temple in Jerusalem and sacrificed a pig on it. Very important for Daniel to hear these things. This is what God's people were going to deal with in the next century and a half. And so God is preparing Daniel, he's preparing God's people for a time of severe persecution. You can read about it in verse 33 in our text. Severe persecution. Many will die. Eventually, it would result in uh, the Maccabean rebellion and all sorts of other things in the history of Israel. Now, that's one reason. It's very practical to the people whom Daniel is writing to. Now, second reason why Antiochus is such a, uh, takes so much space in this vision is because he serves as a prototype of other persecutors who would come after him. Now, Jesus himself, if you read uh, Mark 13 and Matthew 24, Jesus quotes these passages. He looks at Daniel 11 and 12, and he relates it to what was yet to happen in Palestine in his time and later. So he looks at the abomination of desolation, and he says, this is still coming. And it came 
The Roman general Titus did that in A.D. 70. It was another desecration of the temple. But the idea here is that these types, these patterns, they're going to keep developing until the final battle at the end of history. And so we read this passage and we say, yes, this is about history. This is about particular people, Antiochus, Epiphanes. Yes. But also he's a prototype. He's a pattern that we are to look for as new things develop in our own histories. Listen to Joyce Baldwin, the commentator on Daniel. She says, the writer is never speaking only about one era of history. Even though the prediction was to be applied to Antiochus as the first of many oppressors. There is within the chapter, as in the rest of the book, an insistence on the audacity of human pride, which is not confined to any one era. A man sets himself up as his own final authority, acts ruthlessly in pursuit of his own policies, the more so if he is frustrated as was Antiochus finds a scapegoat on whom to vent his bitterness and sets in motion all the weapons of war, psychological as well as material, against the people of God. The cycle is familiar in history, including that of the 20th century, and we can add the 21st century as well. What the book suggests, and later prophecy confirms, is that the escalation of opposition will culminate in a final onslaught in which evil will appear to triumph, and only the intervention of God will prove the contrary. This will be the occasion of final judgment and the setting up of God's kingdom. Daniel 11 is useful to us because it describes not only what happened immediately after this vision in the history of Israel, but also it tells us that a final conflict and a final deliverance of God's people will take place. Now Jesus told us in John 16, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the point of chapter 11 of Daniel. Yes, we will be persecuted. Even after these things pass, there will be things like that again. There will be other antichrists. There will be other rulers who will go against the church. And yet at the end of it all, Jesus will rule supreme. So take heart, even as you're being persecuted, even as you read reports of Christians being, being punished today for their faith, take heart, he has overcome the world. Now how do we engage in this battle in the world? If our first battle, the spiritual battle, was accessed by our prayer. This battle is in the world. It's right here. It's with us. And we access it by wisdom. Wisdom which comes from God's revelation to us. These chapters are written to give us wisdom, to know how to deal with these things. Chapters 11 and 12 juxtapose the wicked and the wise. And we are called to live in wisdom among the wickedness of the world. This has been the theme of the whole book of Daniel, how to live wisely among the wickedness of the world. And it culminates in this concluding vision. So let me give you very briefly three statements to help us be wise in the face of all the wickedness around us. I won't talk much about any one of these, but this gives us a framework to deal with what we see going on in the world even today. 
Number one, the wise are not surprised at the presence and activity of the wicked. The wise are not surprised at the presence and activity of the wicked. Look at Daniel 12, uh, verse 10. Daniel 12, 10. This is a good verse to memorize for us, I think. But the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand. The wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand. Humanity is enslaved by sin. Friends, conflicts and oppression and injustice and poverty and sickness and abuse and pain are part of the broken, wicked world ready to be redeemed at a certain time. We should not be surprised when we encounter evil around us. Number two, the wise resist the power of the wicked. The wise resist the power of the wicked. Daniel eleven thirty two. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. We're not to isolate ourselves and disengage from the world and just wait to be delivered. We are to be engaged and we are to oppose and resist evil. We are to actively go against the evil that we see around us, even though we know it belongs in this world. But part of the reason we are in this world is to oppose the wickedness around us. And three, the wise know the end of the wicked. The wise know the end of the wicked. Look at Daniel 12, 1 through 3. What an encouraging passage for us. That's sort of the culmination of this, this tour through future history. It tells us what will happen at the very end. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. This is what the end of human history will be. The reason God gives us so many historical details before they happen is to prove to us that He knows what's going to happen. He tells us exactly how it's going to unfold so that by the time we get to the end, we can trust Him that He will win. This is the end of human history. There will be a resurrection and a judgment. Some will rise to everlasting life and others will rise to everlasting shame. Those who are wise, those whose names are found in the book at judgment time, shall shine like the bright stars in heaven forever and ever in eternity. Friends, we have seen the end of history, and Jesus wins. This is our great hope that no matter how it happens, and sure, we're confused about the details. I don't know what the numbers at the end of, of chapter 12 mean. I have no idea. The 1,200 and 1,300. I think hindsight, we, we will know what they mean. But however it happens, I know the end. 
And the end is that Jesus will win. And so the question we have today, the question that our text actually answers is, how long? How long do we wait until Jesus wins? How long do we wait until justice is restored, until wickedness is banished, until the wise shine like the stars in the heaven forever? How long till then? So let me take you to verse 7 of chapter 12, Daniel 7 of chapter 12. I'm going to take one of the most confusing verses and hopefully turn it to one of the most encouraging passages in Scripture. The question is asked, how long? And the answer is given, a time, times, and half a time. A time, times, and half a time. This is what it means, a time. There is a definite, limited period of time determined by God. So when you ask how long, God says, a time, he says, I know exactly how long this is going to last. This has been determined by me. I'm in control of the time. Times means it's longer than you think and will seem like several periods of time. Even though it's predetermined by God, he knows exactly when it's going to end. When we look at it, it feels like, oh, there's another period coming up. There's another time. And then half a time. Half a time means that it will not last too long because God will mercifully cut it short. So what is the answer to our question, how long? The answer is trust in God's plan. Be patient and expect mercy. I heard a preacher once say that we should start using these, this passage in our everyday life. And he said that when a child in the car asks, how long till we get there? You can tell them a time, times, and half a time. <laughs> Meaning, trust me, I know exactly when we're going to get there. Be patient, it's going to feel like a lot longer. And then, half a time, we will get there sooner than you expect. Some of you right now are thinking, how long is this sermon going to last? <laughs> a time, times, and half a time. I know what I want to say, it's more than you think, but it's not as much as I could have said. So let's finish on the last battle. There's another very important battle that unfolds on the pages of these chapters. It's a battle in the heart. In this revelation, God is making a very clear distinction between the wicked and the wise, God's people and those who oppress them. There are two groups of people clearly here that are, that are diff they're, they're seeing history very differently. They're seeing God's revelation very differently. The first group is in rebellion against God. They actively oppose God, and they will be punished in the end. Now, the second group belongs to God. They're God's people, and they will be delivered in the end. The difference between the two groups is not ethnicity. It's not education. It's not wealth. It's not even geography. The difference is in the heart. The first group consists of people who have persisted in their rebellion. They have rejected God's mercy. And they live in opposition to God. 
The second group consists of people who have surrendered themselves to God's mercy, accepted His forgiveness, and live in a relationship with Him. And the interesting thing is that nobody in the second group has started there. Anyone who ends up in the group of the wise, the group that's favored by God, has been transferred there from the first group. Everyone starts out in wickedness, and some end up in wisdom. The difference, once again, is in the heart. Some of us have experienced God's grace in a way that transformed us from one state of being to another. It gave us a new trajectory, new life now, and a new hopeful future. Now, when I say grace, I mean one of the central ideas in the Bible. Grace means that no one deserves to be transferred from the first group to the second group, but God does it on our behalf because He loves us. That's grace. God's, God takes a wicked person and then He makes them wise. He takes them from condemnation and moves them into forgiveness. We do not do that. We cannot do that. But God does it by grace. And that grace, when it hits us, when it affects us, it accomplishes an internal transformation. Has it happened to you? Now, grace is the weapon for this third type of conflict. But unlike the first two weapons, prayer and wisdom, this one is not wielded by us. Grace is God's weapon that He uses on our behalf. So to win the battle in our hearts, God has to use His weapon on our behalf. Grace has the power to make the wicked wise, to make God's enemies into His friends, to make condemned people into justified people, strangers into family members. Has it happened to you? Has God applied His grace and put it in your heart and changed your heart and changed your life? It is God's grace that wins our hearts. Has He won yours? Now, grace means that God is fighting for us. We're not fighting that battle, but God is fighting for us. In chapter 10, we saw Jesus opposing the prince of the kingdom of Persia. And some commentators, they look at that and they say, well, this can't be Jesus, it must be an angel because He's fighting another angel for three weeks. Would Jesus really do that? Jesus seems too powerful to do that. And yet when I look at Scripture and I look at my life, Jesus fights many of my battles for a long time. And He humbled Himself so He could come into our world, become exactly like us so that He could fight my battles, so that He could win my heart. Jesus is fighting for his people. Once again, in chapter 12, we see Jesus promising the final deliverance of his people. Jesus promising to win the whole war for us. Of course, we know from the gospel that Jesus fought for us on the cross. He took on all our sins, and he died in our place as if he himself was wicked, as if he himself deserved eternal shame. Jesus won our life in the empty tomb when he defeated the world 
the flesh, and the devil to free us, to deliver us. Jesus is fighting for us even now. When you pray, Jesus fights for you. When you struggle, when you are tempted, Jesus is fighting for you. You're never alone in your struggles. And when you see your heart being divided, it is Jesus who is fighting for that heart to be united again. It is Jesus who sent his spirit to fight for us moment by moment. And Jesus will prevail over your heart in the end. Are you wise enough to accept his grace today?